Our Lamb is alone worthy, and He has indeed taken away the sins of the world, and it is He who speaks to us today. It is no human speaker uh, that is worthy of even communicating God's Word, but that is our task. And so we are here to look at what Christ Himself has to say to us. Uh, Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. You'll find that on page 809 in the Bibles that we have for you in the pews. During the 20th century, there were really two extraordinary defenders of the Christian faith. One uh, is very well known, C.S. Lewis. Uh, The other, maybe not as well known, a Presbyterian minister named Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer was both brilliant and meek in, in the very Uh, Christian sense of the term that we looked at last week. And at the foundation, though, of his meekness, of his gentleness with respect to how he treated other people, uh, was this poverty of spirit that begins this section of the Beatitudes, which is the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And and to give you an example of his own poverty of spirit, uh, in a sermon that he preached on the prostitute Rahab, he he made a couple of statements that uh, may be a bit offensive, but it's the offense of the gospel. He said, we are all prostitutes. We are all harlots. We have all prostituted ourselves constantly before other gods. Now, as I said, that may be a, a bit offensive, but if it is, it's, it's a, the offense of the gospel that reminds us how far short we fall of God's standard and how deeply sinful we, we really are. But it's, it's that recognition of how sinful we are that en- enables us to really begin to appreciate uh, the grace, the kindness, the, the mercy of God towards us who comes to us in spite of our sin and cleans up the mess. And when that happens, and the more we understand that, the more we then begin to treat other people as Christ has treated us. Christ sees us in our sin and yet comes to us, doesn't condemn us, but came to save us. And the more we really experience that, sense that, the more we begin to treat others as Christ has treated us. One of the the characteristics about Francis Schaeffer that I most admire was the way he treated people that he disagreed with, even profoundly. A great example of that is is Bishop Pike, who was a very, very liberal pastor, not in our denomination, of course, but teaching things like there is no such thing as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Schaefer was asked to debate Bishop Pike. He said, I would not, but instead I'll have a conversation with him, and instead of calling it a debate, we'll call it a dialogue. In other words, he he wanted a, a, a kind conversation, and as a result of that, he and Bishop Pike remained friends until Bishop Pike later died. And, and the point of that is this, Schaefer was more interested in winning this man to Christ than winning an argument. He was truly meek in the sense that we read about in the Sermon on the Mount. When I am reminded of Schaefer's example, it makes me wonder 
how we've gone so far from uh, that kind of Christian meekness. And I'm thinking in particular about uh, the kinds of debates that we see oftentimes on television now where uh, we get so excited, don't we, when, when the person we agree with kind of thrashes or owns or crushes the person we disagree with. And, and I wonder, how does that fit with Christ's instructions to us, as we looked at last week, to be poor in spirit, to mourn over our sin? Uh, then to be meek, in other words, gentle and, and kind to others as Christ has been to us. H- how have we gotten so far away from uh, the character of Christ that he calls us to? And, and I want to suggest that I, I think one of the main reasons is that we are more affected by our culture than we think. And I'm going to use an example that, again, may be a bit offensive, but I think oftentimes, and this is one of the great concerns I have for the Christian church in America, I think oftentimes we are more affected by the news we watch than the Bible we read. Now, I'm not speaking about the kind of reporting of the news, but the kind of editorializing news that has become so prevalent today. And that's whether on the right, on the left, or anywhere in between. So, let me ask this question. If you spend 10 to 15 hours a a week watching the news and one hour a week reading the Word of God, what is most going to impact the way you view the world and and most impact your own character? Now, please know I have nothing against the news. I read it, watch it. We should know what's going on in our world. We should know what is going on in our community. But we should also be more concerned about what Christ says to us than what the news says to us. These words that we read here are Christ's very words. We're going to begin reading in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Would you pray with me? Father, we, um, we do fall so far short of uh, your standard in your word, and uh, we have to acknowledge that we are deeply impacted by our culture when we don't recognize the difference between your word and what goes on in this world. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear now from you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, last week, there are three Beatitudes, and I want to take them one at a time. Beginning in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I've been, you know, somewhat hungry at times by my own choice, and I've been thirsty at times not by my own choice. The, the time I'm thinking about was about 40 years ago when I was in the Philippines during a summer project with Camps Crusade for Christ, now crew. And uh, in the Philippines, it is incredibly hot and far more humid even than what we're used to here in, in the summer. And so you're thirsty all day long, but you can't drink the water because you can become deathly ill. And one of our teammates did, in fact, and had to be flown home. She survived it, but she was deathly ill. 
And so all day long, as we were out in the villages, the only thing we had to drink uh, was soft drinks. Now, if you know anything about soft drinks, they don't hydrate you as well as water does. And so uh, you've got this sense all day long that you're thirsty. It never really quenches your thirst. Now, 40 years later, I can still remember what that felt like and how I just longed for a clean, pure glass of water. When Jesus speaks of a hunger and thirst for righteousness here, he's, he's talking about a very intense longing, much more intense than anything I've ever known. But the, the people he was talking to, the Palestinians he was meeting with there, knew exactly what he was saying because they lived in, a, in an arid climate, a, very, a, a wilderness, a, a desert climate. And, and so they knew oftentimes that they were never far away from dehydration or starvation. So they got it. And King David, centuries before, put it eloquently in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So Jesus is using an analogy that his hearers could feel, could sense. And this hunger, this thirst for righteousness, as we see in David's prayer, is is ultimately a hunger, a longing for God himself. There is no true righteousness apart from God. And, And so it's a longing for him, a longing to be near him, to be with him, and him to be with us. Nothing less than God can satisfy the longings that you have, the hunger and the thirst for righteousness. Uh, The writer of Ecclesiastes put it so well when he said that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. In other words, he's put a hole in, in our lives that is so big that nothing, not even the greatest pleasures of this world can possibly begin to satisfy that longing. Only God, only the eternal one can satisfy the the longings we have in our hearts for righteousness. But this longing is not just a kind of vague longing for God. It, it, It includes the longing to be right with God and it includes the longing for our neighbor to be right with God. And that takes us to the next beatitude because mercy is required for that to happen. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I want to read that again. I want you to listen to it. These are Jesus' own words. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, that verse should take our breath away. Because Jesus is very clearly telling us that we will receive his mercy only if we ourselves are merciful people, merciful towards others. You know, one of the things that was so popular when spiritual gift testing became a regular thing in the church, probably in the 1970s, 1980s, 
was uh, sometimes people would recognize they didn't have the gift of mercy, and so they would acknowledge that. But it can become an excuse not then to be merciful. Whether you have the gift of mercy or not, God calls all of us to be merciful. Now, uh, again, this doesn't mean, though, that our mercy earns his mercy. We know that not to be true. We cannot ever be good enough in our mercy to draw down the mercy of God towards us. Instead, uh, what we need to understand is that, that when we show mercy to someone else, it's evidence that we have already received the mercy of God, and it's impacted us to the extent that we have begun showing that same mercy uh, to other people. I love the way James Montgomery Boyce, uh, another PCA pastor who has gone on to be with the Lord, I love the way he puts it, because it's a very balanced, I think, very realistic way to look at this verse. If we do not, he said, show mercy to others, then we show that we either understand little of that mercy by which we have been saved, or else we have never actually received it. Now, I would imagine if I were to ask you, what is mercy I would get a number of different definitions, one of which would be a sense of compassion, and and it certainly includes that. But mercy goes beyond that. It includes the the act uh, that is motivated by this heart of compassion, uh, the the action to help. And and so perhaps the the greatest illustration of that in the Bible is Christ's own parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But there's a definition that Sinclair Ferguson has written years ago that I just love because it it, it makes it practical to us. He, He said this, mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore the dignity to someone whose life has been broken by sin whether his own sin or that of someone else. I want to read that again, and I I want you to get that. It's so important, and it's such a wise way and a practical way to say it. Mercy is getting down on your hands and knees. In other words, getting dirty in the mess and doing what you can to restore dignity to someone whose life has been broken by sin, either his own sin or that of someone else. And so mercy is so much more than just a feeling of compassion. It is a cleaning up of a mess we have not made. There's a wonderful story or example of that in a short story by Wendell Berry that I've shared with some of you before, but it's about a a young boy whose name is Wheeler, grows up in the country and uh, he loves his mother's brother, Uncle Peach, and, and he spends a lot of time with him. They laugh together. They play together. But then as Wheeler becomes an adolescent, he realizes that his uncle is an alcoholic and is drunk more often than not. And so he wants nothing more to do with them. And one day he's kind of upset with his own mother who's troubling herself over her brother and mourning over him. And he just kind of Um, goes after her and and says, why in the world do you spend so much time trying to help him? Just let him go his own way. Let him do whatever he's going to do. Just give up. And and her answer was, well, blood is thicker than water. And and then mocking his mother, he says, well, blood is thicker than liquor too. 
And she said, yes, it is. Wheeler grows up, goes to college, goes on to law school, gets married, brings his new bride home uh, to set up his practice, to live where he grew up. And uh, at one point after that, he has a conversation with his mother where he started, you can tell he started to realize uh, that his mother's perspective on life may be better than his, and where we are to take responsibility for others, where we are to extend mercy. And, and he speaks to her in a much kinder tone than the mocking way he did before. And, and he says, blood is thicker than liquor, isn't it? And she says, yes, it is. Not long after that, Wheeler gets a call from a hotel clerk in Louisville where his uncle uh, had gotten drunk, had messed up his room, and instinctively, Wheeler says, I'll come get him. Gets there. The room is a mess. He cleans up the, the vomit. Gets him a cup of coffee and uh, takes him home on a train where his uncle throws up again and again. They get to the train station. He puts him in a buggy. This is a long time ago, 150 years ago or so. They head home where uh, his uncle continues to throw up. And after about 12 times, Wheeler finally says to his uncle, I hope you puke your guts out. He was just fed up. And then his uncle, sitting back against the, the seat, pale as, as a ghost, said, oh, Lord, honey, you don't mean that. And then Wheeler puts his hand on his back, patting him and saying, I don't mean that. And then really, for the first time, what, what you see is Wheeler looking at his uncle as his mother always had, as a poor, hurt, weak mortal. And then the story ends with this beautiful picture of mercy. As Wheeler gets him home, rather than going home to his new bride, he, he spends the night, he stays there to take care of his uncle, to get him through the night. His uncle doesn't sleep well. It's restless. They're just kind of the terrors of his body going through what he was going through. And, and, uh, and Wheeler can't get to sleep either until finally he does. He falls asleep with his hand resting on his uncle's shoulder where it had been and where it would remain. Mercy is cleaning up a mess that we have not made. But isn't that exactly what we see Christ doing for us? Doesn't he see us as poor, hurt, weak mortals? And hasn't he come to us in the mess that we have made, not requiring us to clean ourselves up before we come to know him, but he comes to us in all of the mess and begins the process of making us new, of cleaning us up. And that gets us really to our final beatitude this morning because these are very, very closely related. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Commentators agree, and more than likely this is the case, that the Old Testament background for Christ's own words here are Ezekiel's prophecy hundreds of years before when he said this, uh, referring to the coming work of, of Christ and the Spirit in us, I will 
sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. So, so to have a clean heart, to have this pure heart, is a gift from the Lord. It's not something that we can do ourselves, but that gift is something we can cultivate because we will never be completely pure this side of heaven. But to be pure in heart is more than simply having a, a clean heart. At least the, the definition of being pure in heart involves something that we maybe not uh, are accustomed to thinking of. And that is that it means to have an undivided heart. It means to have a, a heart ultimately focused on one thing. It, it means to be uncompromisingly devoted or dedicated to Christ. And, and so ultimately what it means is that your whole self is wholly devoted to God. That's what it means to be pure in heart. And again, that is a gift. But we need to cultivate that gift. And there are many ways to do that. But, but in, in light of where we are in the Scripture, in the context, one of the best ways to cultivate this, this devotion, this wholehearted devotion uh, to our God is, is to remind ourselves uh, to meditate on, to reflect on the fact that He is wholeheartedly devoted to us. And quite frankly, the more you see his devotion that led him to a cross, the, the more you will appreciate not only the gift, but also the more you will turn and be devoted to the one who is so devoted to you. So how do we, we grow then in this purity of heart? Well, I've been saying this again and again during these first two weeks back, but we have to remind ourselves of our spiritual poverty. And then we remind ourselves of the mercy that we have been extended by Christ. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing that we didn't have to clean ourselves up first. But He comes into the vomit and uh, the mess of our lives and begins the process of making us new. He's come to clean up a mess that he didn't make, a mess that, that we have made. And, and quite frankly, then, the, the, the more we understand what he's done for us, the more we reflect on who we once were and who we are becoming, uh, the more we will appreciate his work for us and in us, uh, the more we will be devoted to him, and the more we will want to follow him. I have a dear friend who a number of years ago, heard me share the story about Uncle Peach. And afterwards, he would drop me a note on a card, and at the bottom, he would sign it, Uncle Peach. And that's just one of the many things I admire about this dear man who is someone who extends the mercy of Christ to those in need. It is kind of the heartbeat of his life. But he gets it at, at the foundation of becoming truly merciful. We have to recognize our poverty of spirit. We have to recognize that all of us are Uncle Peach. I wonder how comfortable you would be signing your letters, Uncle Peach. Even if you've never 
struggled with alcohol in any way, you and I have struggled in many ways. Perhaps it's what you look at when no one else is looking. Perhaps it's anger, an unrighteous kind of anger that simply just will not go away. Perhaps it's self-pity or self-righteousness or self-deceit. Whatever you or I have struggled with, we are Uncle Peach. We need Jesus to clean up the mess that we have made. And the more we embrace that, the more devoted to Christ we will become, the more pure in heart we will become. And one day, we will see Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a lesson I have to learn over and over and over again. And usually it comes when I catch myself or someone else catches me not looking at someone with mercy, but looking instead with a a sense of anger or judgment or even condemnation. So, Father, as I stand before this dear congregation, I pray that you would help me more and more to see just who I really am before you. And I pray for each of us that you would give us eyes to see our hearts. May they be laid bare before you. And may we have a sense of what you see so that we can grow in our appreciation for your kindness to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's respond to our merciful God in song.